Since the 1860s, the stories surrounding America's Civil War have been told over and over again. From around the world, scholars, celebrated authors, and armchair historians have produced thousands of books and songs, hundreds of films, and full-scale reenactments, each bringing to light a unique perspective. And then, along came Ken Burns. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Phil Russman. Our guest tonight, Ken Burns, captured the planet with his documentary series, The Civil War. His acclaimed execution and unique style transformed the words, Ken Burns, into a benchmark for documentary filmmaking and even an effect in Apple's iMovie software. Speaking with Ken will be our guest host, Harold Holzer, Civil War historian and author of Lincoln at Cooper Union, the speech that made Abraham Lincoln president. Coming up in a moment, Ken Burns. and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest today is Harold Holzer, Civil War historian and author. Harold, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us about your background and some of the books that you've written and co-authored. Well, I've been writing about the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln for about 20 years. Um... I've written books like Lincoln on Democracy with Mario Cuomo, The Lincoln Image, The Confederate Image, The Union Image, um, books about the art of the Civil War like Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, uh, The Civil War in Art, and most recently uh, a book called Lincoln at Cooper Union, The Speech That Made Abraham Lincoln President. That's my newest. Okay. Uh, you're also now at the Museum of Metropolitan Art in New York. I'm vice president of the Metropolitan Museum and chairman of 
the United States Lincoln Bicentennial Commission, which is uh, preparing for the 200th birthday of Lincoln in 2009. As soon as we get Ken Burns on the line here, which should be momentarily, you've actually worked with Ken before. I have. Two decades ago, I was I was a uh, the, the head of publicity at public television station WNET in New York, which was the producing station for his first documentary uh, in 1982, The Brooklyn Bridge. So we do go back a long way, and of course I've uh, known him since in the Civil War community, and he's even done some filming here at the Metropolitan Museum for uh, his work on Frank Lloyd Wright. That was a fantastic documentary, yeah. by the way. Well, all of them are. And, oh, yes. Ken, are you on? Ken Burns, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Harold. Hi, Ken. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank I don't you. know if you're as surprised as I am to be part of this uh, session, but it's a, I was asked to do it, and it's always a pleasure to see you or talk to you and to talk about you. Sir, ditto, ditto. I agree. Thank you. Ken, tell us a little bit about how you got started in filmmaking. Well, I had always, since a young boy, wanted to be a filmmaker and ended up going to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, where I studied with a lot of social documentary still photographers, and they reminded me that there's much more drama in what is than what and what was than anything the human imagination can dream of, and I abandoned uh, a notion of becoming a Hollywood director in favor of uh, documentaries, and that just combined with a latent and relatively untutored interest in American history to find the little niche that I've been working in for low these 30 years. I was telling our host today that um, the first time I met you, you were working on the Brooklyn Bridge. That's right. A long time ago. A very long time ago. Was that, was that your first? <laughs> that was the first one that was uh, broadcast on public television. And so in a way, yes, uh, there's a few others that I claim authorship to. But I think that things really got started in terms of how to use history and uh, manipulate photographs and sound effects and music and first-person voices in, in Brooklyn Bridge that I'd never done before. I remember when we in the um, promotion department at... WNET in New York first saw the rough cut of it. It was absolutely new. It was a new, just a new way of seeing, and one just felt that you were back in the 1880s going across that bridge for the first time. You know, Harold, the best compliment I think I've ever gotten for any film, not an award, not a review, but at the premiere of the Brooklyn Bridge film at the Brooklyn Museum, uh, this you know proverbial little old lady stood up and said, wherever did you get those newsreels of the Brooklyn Bridge? <laughs> and I said, I said, ma'am, you know, film was not invented uh, until the... 1890s, and this film details the constructions between 1869 and 1883 when the bridge was opened. And she goes, no, no, no. And I, she said, the films were so great. And I thought, well, maybe in our second half of the film we'd found some wonderful rare footage that Edison took uh, mounted on a train that used to go back and forth of the Brooklyn Bridge, some of the earliest motion pictures in America. No, 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 not that. I'm talking about the construction where the men are lifting the boulders up to the the, the granite stone up to the towers. And uh, I said, well, those are all still photographs. And she looked at me and she said, no, they're not. <laughs> That's amazing. As, as, as sort of critical as she was, it still stands, I think, to the best compliment of what we were trying to do, which is essentially born out of our teacher's training that the individual image 
has so much to say to us, and we live in a kind of MTV world where we cut so quickly away from it that when few of us are permitted the luxury of luxuriating inside a still photograph and that I could tr take a still photograph and treat it the way a feature filmmaker would a long shot, that is to say something that had the possibility of having a medium and a close shot and pans and tilts and all the things that Hollywood employs, but this time within a still photograph. And I think when we added complicated effects and first-person voices and music from the period and period instruments, all of a sudden... Um, William Faulkner's old thing about history not being was but is maybe for a couple of seconds comes true. Well, but there, I mean, there's no question that the pictures were moving to that lady and to observers since because they, the, the magic, the, the unique style that you brought to looking at or having us look at archival photographs is, uh, you know, much replicated but not done by anyone quite like you do it. Oh, thank you, Harold. I think that sound is also a very important part of the production. I think people often overlook how much work and thought goes into not only just the music, but actually the sound effects. That's correct. You know, the old traditional documentary, you know, usually about war, was that you added the sound of troops tramping, and that was it. You know, one sound effects track. But at the height of the Pickett's Charge and the Battle of Gettysburg in our Civil War series, I think we were somewhere over 60 individual tracks, sound effects tracks. Oh, my we were God. trying to create a kind of an experiential feel uh, for that yeah, moment. We can still hear, I mean, you still hear this, the, the bayonets moving as people march and the yes. caissons rolling. And, and, of course, the absolutely unforgettable music. It's the, what is it called, the Ashokan Farewell? Ashokan Farewell. It's so interesting because that piece was the only modern piece. Uh, what we do is we, we, we sort of take um, the soundtracks of our film sort of exactly backwards from what is traditionally done. Usually you finish editing a film and you get close to locking the picture and then the composer comes in and sort of adds something that hits the marks and the beats and the cuts and amplifies emotions you hope, you hope are there. We, on the other hand, at the very early stages of editing, sometimes before editing, identify, as we did in the case of the Civil War, uh, several dozen tunes that we were drawn to simply for their emotional effect on us and then went into a studio with our musicians and played them 10 or 15 different ways so a triumphant song like the battle cry of freedom we would also play soft and yeah. mournful on a single piano and it basically gave us uh, lots of grist for the mill and what we found is that as the, we were tinkering with the pictures and the words uh, and the voices in the film we began to edit to the rhythm of the pre-existing music so it's much more organic but one of the session musicians had composed this tune called Ashokan uh, Farewell it was a nice Jewish boy from the Bronx who made this incredibly gorgeous Scotch-Irish lament that is timeless uh, his name is Jay Unger and he played it and uh, I was so stunned that I turned it into the theme song and I think in a way because it, because it wasn't contemporary to the Civil War it connected us in the present to that period even better than some of the other more familiar tunes like Dixie and Battle Cry of Freedom and the Battle Hymn of the Republic and Lorena and all the favorite tunes which we also employed. Well I feel like the old lady who who insisted that the pictures were moving, you can tell me about Jay Unger and I've met him and heard him play but you can't ever convince me that that song didn't come from the Civil War. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I have found out in the 14-plus years since the Civil War was first broadcast 
that that has been played at funerals and at weddings and at renewal of vows and at solemn ceremonies around the world. Uh, Not to mention reenactments. And, and of course, few of them it is the, actually the, seen, the staple of reenactments. Yes, That's, absolutely. Uh, a wonderful thing. And I don't it's think... The can, uh, it's the firelight, the fire, whatever you call the fires dwindling and the embers yeah. glowing. So that's exactly that right. Yeah. So we, you know, Jay, I don't even think appreciated fully what he had. Uh, and I kept going back to him and I said, this is a magnificent, magnificent, magnificent uh, piece. I've uh, seen him perform it at the, uh, at the Gettysburg Cemetery in the midst of observances of the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address. And as awe-inspiring as that day is anyway, even with the political speeches, certainly one hears Lincoln's words again, and it's and it's so evocative, and I've heard him play there, and it's just, to hear those that melody cascading over that slope, it's quite a moving experience. It's amazing. One of the reasons that you may have chosen that song was, could it be that it wasn't either a northern song or a southern song? No, you know what happened is that it wasn't actually Jay who sent me the record. It was one of the session musicians on that uh, record, and it was a disc, and he sent it to me. And I remember, sort of out of courtesy, uh, doing a needle drop and, you know, the first song and listening to a few seconds and second tune and the third, and the fourth just stopped me cold. And it just, it appealed to my heart. You know, there's the, the decisions that one makes in making a film, just like writing a history, you, you make literally a million decisions. And some of them are intellectual. You plot and describe and, and struggle with certain things. Others are just visceral. You know, to make a film is a hugely physical activity. And then others really come from the heart. And for me, it was just a pure emotional response. It hit some sort of chords the way certain kinds of music does in me. And I just had to have it. I had to use it. And it's interesting that you bring up North and South because we did take Battle Cry of Freedom, which is probably the second most used uh, piece of music in the series. And that was an anthem that was played by both the North and the South. Mm -hmm. and became With different lyrics. With different lyrics, yeah. with different emphasis. And mm -hmm. it was mainly a martial piece. To, it's very stirring. You know, it's a wonderful tune, but we would take a pianist with a single hand and have her just play it slow with the notes disconnected as if it was echoing uh, almost like rifle fire uh, through the hills. and Especially like evocative after a battle. Exactly. The camera and was surveying the uh, the casualties and the, and the carnage. That's exactly right. And so you, you would find different relationships of how music could be done or you might find that a minor key version of a of a, yeah. a very familiar tune has a has haunting possibilities and uh, we found that on many instances and that's the sort of thing that you can do and build it in at the get-go so that it's not something you're sort of adding artificially i mean even the word scoring just means that you're mathematically timing music that is being created for a specific purpose. So it has a kind of otherness to it. But if you've dealt with music that is in its own right good and compelling, you, you can have it played in its own time and let the film conform itself. And we would find ourselves, for example, as we used Ashokan Farewell, rewriting our opening narration to fit the pace and rhythm of the musical phrases. So Scoring the narration rather than the... Exactly, which is the, you know, upside down from the way you're supposed to do it. But in fact... People started talking almost from the first night. The music, the music. What happened? Yeah. What is that piece of music? I need to hear that again. Of course, you've got the Pavarotti of uh, narrators in McCulloch. <laughs> David McCullough was uh, 
somebody who had written a book on the Brooklyn Bridge, which was the, the subject of our first film for PBS. And I had a hard time convincing people that uh, a, a writer would be a good choice. They wanted some deep, dark, you know, uh, uh, male voice, basso profundo, who would be the voice of God, the way narrators were supposed to be. And I said, but this guy knows, you know, what we've written for him. And could live it, could inhabit the words. And, yeah. uh, he's sort of become the uh, heir apparent, or I guess he's, uh, people don't even remember his predecessors, but I remember Alexander Scorby. Of Alexander Scorby, yeah. And Westbrook Van Voorhis, who was yep. sort of the staccato newsreel voice. Great voices from the past, but exactly. McCullough really has the, the lock on the, on, the, on the period. He does. You know, it's easy to see with your enthusiasm for music, how you moved from the Civil War to jazz. And I, One thing that I was wondering about is whether you see an arc of history, that you're, a continuum that you've developed here uh, between the Civil War and then moving to jazz and now uh, Jack Johnson. Is there is the story race? Is that really the story, the American story that you're covering? Oh, what an excellent question. I, I wish I could say that there was some master plan uh, and there wasn't. You know, I'm drawn to each subject in a kind of emotional, visceral way, and then you sort of say, yes, I've got to do this. But I think you can't be honest about American history. You can't scratch the surface of American history without coming in face-to-face with this question of race, which has not only bedeviled but ennobled us over the course of our relatively okay. short life as a country. And so... The most important event in American history is the Civil War. It wouldn't have happened had we not hypocritically held slaves in a country that had fourscore and five years before uh, suggested that all men were created equal. And the man who wrote those words owned more than 200 human beings and never saw fit in his life to free them. And so we have got an American narrative sort of... uh, focus sharply on this question of race, and and I kept being drawn back to it, not just in the the Civil War, but in baseball, which I saw as the sequel to the Civil War, and then jazz. You're listening to Civil War Talk Radio with Harold Holzer and Ken Burns. We'll be back in a moment. Yes, we'll rally round the flag, boys, we'll rally once again. Shouting the battle cry of freedom, we will rally from the hillside, we'll gather from the plain. Shouting the battle cry of freedom. 